morning. How many of you have ever shared scar stories? Actually, it can be a great icebreaker. I used to do with our youth group when I was a youth minister. It's where you go around the room and you show a scar, obviously the ones that are appropriate to show, and you show a scar and you tell the story that's behind it because virtually all of us have a scar, right? Almost all of us have maybe even a small scar on our chin where we fell when we were little, hit the corner of the coffee table, you know, where we crashed our bike or we were in a, a car wreck or had some sort of surgery. Virtually all of us have a scar. And behind that scar is a story. I'll never forget being at North Heights Church of Christ in Batesville, Arkansas, working one day, and my wife called me frantically and said, I need you to meet us at the hospital. Zoe has touched the treadmill while I was running on it, and it's burned her hand. I mean, that's, that's a terrible feeling, to hop in your car, to drive to the hospital, not knowing what is going on. And it was. It was a, a terrible-looking friction burn, I think is what they called it pretty grotesque. To this day, she has that scar and that story to tell, and we all do. We all have scars. We all have stories that go along with them, but some of those scars, as you know, are not visible. Some of them are more hidden. Some of those scars are mental and emotional, and these scars tell a story as well. Some of them tell the story of tragic loss, debilitating illness. Some of them even tell a story of loneliness, maybe even depression. And these scars are not easy to get over. In fact, many times we don't get over them at all. How many of you have experienced the loss of a spouse, mother or father, maybe even a child? And you've asked certain questions to yourself. You've asked, why am I crying so much when I know they're in heaven? Why isn't my faith stronger? When does it get easier? Will I ever laugh again? And you've heard the trite old sayings, the bumper sticker theology, God will never give you more than you can handle, let go and let God, or God's got this, but that doesn't help. In fact, nothing really seems to help. You know that you can't sit around at home and cry all day, but that's really all you want to do. And people who care deeply about you will call you and they'll try to get you out of the house, get you to do something, but the last thing you want to do is be around people. Even coming to church is hard. Sitting in that same pew where you sat with your loved one, holding their hand during the prayer, singing the same song together as you worship the Lord. It's not easy. And those scars linger. They hang around, and they tell a story, and unfortunately, that story isn't always a happy story. Death is the most democratic experience there is, because it doesn't leave anyone out. It is all-inclusive, and it causes collateral damage for sure, but death leaves us with a choice, the choice to be helpless or hopeful. Do we move forward with the scars still fresh on our hearts, or do we succumb to loneliness and despair? And it is my hope and prayer that you will choose to move forward, to seek to be hopeful and not hopeless. Again, I'm not trying to sell you on the fact that this is easy, because it's not. I just want to give you hope. As a preacher, I believe it is my job every week to leave you with hope. 
even if it's one of those so-called hellfire and brimstone preach, uh, sermons. It's just, it should still have hope at the end of it. And I want to tell you this morning, there is hope. This isn't as good as it gets. It gets better. It's like the young lady that uh, I was reading about last week who was sitting by the pool. She was watching her little boy splash around in the water. It was time to leave, and so she scooped him up. She was also seven months pregnant. And as she scoops up her boy and they're walking off, she slips. And as she's about to fall forward, everything goes in slow motion. And she thinks to herself, I can fall on my belly and also land on top of my son and perhaps hurt them seriously. Or I can do something different. And she decides to fall on her knees and then roll over. And of course, when she does, it busts her kneecaps open and she, she bleeds everywhere. She has, you know, these, these scars on her knees now, but those scars point to something that was sacrificial, something that was done out of love. And it's just a minuscule example of what Jesus did for us on the cross, right? The love and the sacrifice that gave us something undeserving. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter, uh, let's look at John chapter 20, starting in verse 26. It says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came and the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Now, Thomas was not with the rest of the apostles when Jesus appeared the first time. And so he doubted their story. In fact, we often associate Thomas with doubt. He's synonymous with doubt. You look up doubt in the dictionary, you probably find a picture of Thomas, right? He's, he's gained this moniker of doubting Thomas. And that's a moniker that is unwarranted, I believe, because he wasn't the only one who refused to believe until he saw Jesus. You realize that, right? He was also one who boldly proclaimed in John chapter 11, let's go with Jesus and die with him. Jesus was going to lay, raise dead Lazarus in Bethany, and, and the apostles feared that the religious leaders would kill him. But Jesus is going anyway, and Thomas says, then we'll go and die with you. And even after seeing the scars, Thomas makes a bold confession of faith. Really, the only apostle that we read about that gave a bold confession in utterly unambiguous terms, my Lord and my God. You know, Thomas wanted to see the evidence for himself. We often read this story and we, we kind of assume that Thomas was demanding to see the scars before he believed, but Jesus shows them. Thomas didn't demand anything. Jesus just says, here, here they are. Touch them. Put your finger inside. You'll see. Here's the question, though, I have for you. Why did Jesus keep the scars? You ever thought about that? I mean, Scripture seems to indicate that though Jesus' body was somewhat changed, he still looked in appearance the way he did before he was crucified. That he didn't appear to the apostles and to everyone else a bloody mess. Now, again, we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they cleaned him up before they buried him, all those kind of things. But after the resurrection... 
it seems to indicate in Scripture that we have a Jesus that's much like he was before he was crucified, before he died, before he was buried, yet one distinct difference. Scars. Why did he keep the scars? Well, his scars certainly told a story, did they not? They told a story of, of pain and, and heartache. These scars were a constant reminder of what he went through in order to receive them. They tell a story, and many times that story is going to include immense pain and sorrow, and certainly it did for Jesus. But it also, it also showed a story of hope. You see, within the traumatic events that surrounded this, this souvenir that Jesus came away with, there is victory. There is triumph. For Jesus, the scars represented unprecedented victory. Though they represent the pain of a horrific death, they also represent the joy of an unending hope. Through the cross, divine love found a way to overcome. God did not allow death to win. Instead, he allowed his son to bear all the consequences and yet rise still victorious. He did not stop the resurrection, or excuse me, did not stop the crucifixion, but he did cause the resurrection. And Jesus' scars are symbolic of the defeat of death and sin. Listen to what Paul writes. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe one of the primary reasons why Jesus kept the scars is because he wanted his disciples to understand the hope that they represent. Before Jesus appeared to them, the apostles were hunkered down in fear. After he appears to them, a complete transformation happens. Have you ever noticed that? That when Jesus needed them the most, they could not be found. They ran and they hid. But after Jesus appears to them, after he shows them the scars, they're a completely different bunch. Now they are willing to boldly proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. The scars were a reminder that while Jesus was crucified, he had also risen. And because of that fact, there is hope that this isn't all that there is, that it gets better. The scars of Jesus become scars of hope as we deal with our own wounds as well. It was several years ago on a hot summer day that a little boy decided he wanted to go swimming in the pond behind his house. His mother, who was still inside watching from the window, says, go ahead. And so he rushes out the door, so anxious to jump in the water, he pulls off his, his socks and his shoes, and he jumps in and he starts swimming to the middle of the pond. And as he's swimming out to the middle of the pond, an alligator is swimming towards the shore. And mom is watching this scene out the window, and she runs outside, and she screams and yells for her son to start coming back to the shore. And she goes out there to rescue him. And just before he gets to her, the alligator clamps down on his legs. She grabs his arms, and now there is this intense battle, this, this tug of war that's going on. And as the mother is grabbing his arms and holding on for dear life, the alligator is much stronger. And mom is screaming at the top of her lungs, and a farmer who happened to be passing by heard the screams. He gets out with gun in hand, and he goes and he shoots the alligator. 
And after several months in the hospital, the little boy comes away healthy, alive. He gets to keep his legs. And the newspaper wanted to do a story, and so they asked him, can we see the scars on your legs? And he raises his pant legs, and he shows the scars proudly. And he says, I've got great scars on my arms as well. He said, they're there because my mom would not let go. And the scars of Jesus tell a story of a God that wouldn't let go. A God that was so compassionate and had so much passion for you and for me that he wouldn't let go. These scars are symbolic of a God who cares so deeply for us that he sent his only begotten son to die that cruel death. God reached down to rescue his children, and he's not letting go. And so as we deal with these difficult times in our lives, whatever it may be, we can approach them with unending hope, knowing that we have a God who sympathizes with our suffering. That while it may seem unbearable now, there is hope. Jesus promised that. And thanks be to God that, that our current sadness will be at some point replaced with future glory. Now, no doubt that what I've said this morning, very few of you, if any, disagree with. But that still leaves the, the how. How do we move forward? How do we, how do we get through what we're going through? We might put it like this. How do we get through until eternity? I mean, we love our loved ones. We, we're, we're happy for them. We're glad that they're in heaven. But that means that they're not here, and that's the problem, right? So how do we get through it until we go to be with them, until we go to be with our Lord for all eternity? Well, let me make a few suggestions to you this morning. Again, I'm not suggesting that this is going to be easy, but some things that I think need to happen if we're going to move forward in hope. And the first thing is we need to confront reality. Denial is a very real stage in the grieving process. This is a hard thing to come to grips with, but at some point we have to confront the reality that our loved one is gone and that they're not coming back. We have to face that reality, as difficult as it is. And we have to make a decision, a conscious decision and effort to move forward. And secondly, we have to face the pain. We have to understand that grief is hard work. It's demanding. It's, it's consuming socially, physically, mentally, spiritually. Someone, said, someone once said that grief is to loss what healing is to surgery. That's so true. I had a good friend in Cassville, Missouri, who's passed away now, who at 85 years of age decided, you know what, I don't walk very well, I need to have both knees replaced, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do both knees at once. And we kind of said, ah, I don't know if that's a good idea, Dave, I mean, that may not be the best option. You may do one and see how you take it and then do the other. But he said, nope, I'm going to just get it over with. So he did both knees, got them both replaced, and in the weeks, just a few weeks following that surgery, if you asked him, was that a good decision, he would have said, no way. I can't believe I did this. But six months later, when he was walking like he'd never walked before, it was the best decision that he'd ever made. You've got to go through some pain in order to get the result that you desire. And sometimes the rehab, the process, everything that goes through having loss or dealing with loss can be difficult. It can be painful. But there's hope on the other side. It does get better. Attempting to suppress grief is dangerous. It's like 
trying to put a band-aid on cancer. It doesn't work. Don't suppress it. Confront the reality. Face the pain and understand that there is recovery. And a third step is finding a new normal. You know, if, if, you're, a, if you're a man who has lost his wife, you're now having to adjust your life, not only in dealing with loss, but maybe doing some things that you've never done before. Now all of a sudden, you've got to do your own laundry. Maybe you hadn't done that before. Maybe now you've got to learn how to cook. Never had to cook. Your wife did that for you. If you're a, if you're a female who has lost your spouse, now maybe the yard work is your responsibility. Now there are some things that he did that he took care of that now you've got to learn to take care of. There's an adjustment, right? It's sometimes very trivial, mundane things, but there's always an adjustment. And there is finding a new normal, coming to grips with the fact that this is my life now. For how much ever longer I have here on earth, this is my life now. And so maybe when it comes to finding a new normal, we, we try to embrace as much as possible a way of life that we've never really known before, but we accept it as much as possible and we move on. And then we emotionally relocate. What does that mean? Well, emotional relocation means that you will never replace your loss. You will never get over losing that person, but perhaps you invest your emotions in something else. Maybe you invest in a hobby. Maybe you invest in volunteering. Maybe you invest in another person. This in no way means that you are diminishing the memory of the lost loved one. It in no way means that you are trying to put them out of your mind and forget them. It just means that things are different now. And if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be able to function in this new normal, I'm probably going to have to emotionally relocate in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes counselors advise individuals who are dealing with this to write a letter to their lost loved one. They say that writing a letter to them kind of brings closure. A lot of times when you lose a loved one, you feel like, especially if it was sudden, you didn't have time to say goodbye. You didn't get that opportunity to tell them everything that you wanted to tell them. And so counselors will say, write them a letter. Get those feelings out on paper. You know, a lot of times when we deal with grief, we deal with what's not been said. And sometimes that can be a good way to cope. Dr. Henry Nguyen writes this, he says, I am a wounded healer, someone who has had to look carefully after my own wounds while at the same time caring enough to try to do something in the name of Christ about the wounds of others. I know that I feel like that sometimes. I feel like a wounded healer. When I lost my mother, it gave me a whole new perspective on how to help families who are dealing with loss because I've been on the other side now. Many of you have probably experienced what it's like to be a wounded healer. You're trying to move forward, you're trying to heal, and perhaps one way that can help you is by helping others. There are people in this congregation that are dealing, what you've, dealing with what you've already been through, and maybe you can help them. Maybe you can invest time and energy into them, helping them get through what they're going through, and maybe that can help you as well, knowing that you're helping someone. Whatever the response may be, I think emotionally relocating 
is necessary to move forward. Some way, somehow, someday, we're all going to die. We're all born with an expiration date. And when we pass away, the funeral home is going to take us. They're going to clean us up a bit, make us look somewhat normal. And then we're going to have the funeral. And we're going to sing some songs, and, and more than likely you're going to have you know, the obituary read or some prayers said. Somebody, maybe me, is going to say something nice about you. And at the end of that service, the box is going to be closed, and the body is going to be put in the ground. Now, that's not being crude. I mean, that's just the facts, right? That all of us, at least our body, is going to spend some box time. That's just how it is. But as we think about life, as we think about death, as we think about losing a loved one, we know that everyone who has lived has died eventually. That's the report from the cemetery. We know that, right? So if this is reality, then how do we deal with it? If we're all going to have to face it someday, how do we deal with it? What's our response? That's really what we're looking at is, is how do we make it through what we're going through when we lose a loved one? How do we prepare so that when we leave this world, our grieving loved ones can have hope that we're in heaven. How do we, how do, we do that? Now, I think we have to understand that, you, that death is not leaving the land of the living to go to the land of the dying. It's quite the opposite. When we leave this life, we are, we are going to the land of the living. A child of God goes to the land of the living. The scars that you bear right now in dealing with the loss of a loved one are not scars that you will bear in eternity. Something else that I, like to, that I like to say a lot of times at funerals, and we've had a lot of funerals lately. I look up sometimes, and I see some of you at these funerals. Some of you have been at every single funeral that I've done, which has been many over the last year, and I think, man, y'all are hearing the same thing over and over again. I'm not reinventing myself too much. I hope you don't get sick of it, but one thing that I say over and over again that I think is important for grieving individuals to understand is that God celebrates death, that the death of a loved one who was a child of God is something that God celebrates. He is not mourning that death, so to speak. He is not grieving over one of his children who die in the Lord. Notice Psalm 116 and verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Consider Revelation 14 and 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. God celebrates death. The physical death of one of his children is not as heart-rending to him as it is for us. Now, I believe that he suffers with us, and I believe that he sees his children in pain, and it hurts him. I don't believe that we serve a God who stands at a distance. We serve a God who sent his son to go through the very same things that we have gone through. But we don't have to feel sorry for the one who dies in the Lord. We mourn their loss. We grieve, and I, like we said last week, that's natural and needed. But we don't feel sorry for them. We want what's best for our loved one. And if they're a child of God, then death is it. That is best. That is what 
what we should want for them, right? The problem is dealing with the loss. And by the way, that may not be the best way to put it. We talk about, you know, losing someone or losing a loved one. When you lose something, you don't know where it's at. We don't lose a loved one. When they die in the Lord, we know exactly where they're at. And hopefully that gives us peace. Hopefully that gives us some hope. Even though it's so heartrending to us, hopefully it helps us to get through it. Of course, all of this presents a little bit of a problem for those of us like myself who have a loved one who dies who wasn't in the Lord, right? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the grief of one who dies who was not a child of God? Because you read Scripture and you start saying to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, how do you deal with that? And I always say this to people, do your best and forget the rest. Only you can take care of your soul. That's it. And if your loved one is is in heaven, they're going to want you there. If they're not, they're not going to want you where they're at. Right? All you can do is take care of yourself. Concern yourself with your soul. Be the best you can be. Seek to live for God. And don't beat yourself up about things that you can't control. I want to say this to you. I want you to do something for me. Those of you who are grieving right now, when you go to the grave of your loved one, when you go out there and you stand or you kneel or you sit by their grave and you cry, because I know you do, when you do that, the next time you do that, I want you to do something for me. I want you to read something while you're there. I want you to read this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When you're standing at the grave of your loved one, when you are shedding those tears and you are missing them, be reminded that you do not grieve as those who have no hope. That while you grieve, while you shed those tears, this isn't as good as it gets you can be reminded of the fact that there's more. And so I would say to you, reflect on all the things that you miss about your loved one. Go ahead and grieve. But don't feel sorry for the one you've lost. And as you reflect, as you read this passage from 1 Thessalonians, Maybe you also say, I miss you, but I'll see you again.
has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well. Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is Are you grieving this morning? If you are, we want to invite you to come forward, let us pray with you, and let us leave you with hope. Are you grieving sin? If so, do something about it this morning. Set up a Bible study with one of the elders or one of the staff members. If you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, then do that, but don't leave here without hope. Whatever your need is, come now. We stand and as we sing.